So I went to a pretty amazing high school. Um, we had this, a lot of kids who were really talented and gifted in a lot of ways. And there was this one kid in my high school who was the number three chess player in the world uh, for his age. And he, would, he was like the human calculator. You could go up to him in a hallway and give him any equation, and he could spit it out in like a second. And he would miss weeks at a time to go on chess tournaments all over the world. And man, I'll, I'll never forget one statistic that like a chess master can see up to like 15 moves into the future. Now, when he came back one time from a chess tournament, I um, was like, yo, everybody was giving him like props in the hallway. And I was a jerk in high school. Um, I'm still a jerk now, but that's a whole other <laughs> conversation. I said, hey, man. I heard you were the number three chess player in the world. And he was like, I am. And I was like, do you know who the number one chess player is? And he named some like European dude's name, Russian dude's name, who I can't pronounce. And I was like, no, no, it's not him. It's me. I'm the number one chess player in the world. And he was like, well, if that's true, then why didn't you go to the tournament? I was like, it wasn't a test for me. It wouldn't have been a test. I, I, I sat this one out. And he was like, you don't even know how to play chess. And I was like... Said, so with that, you know, you're lucky you don't have a chess board right now, or else I will show you a thing or two about chess. And this guy was always very subdued, but he had like this smile that slowly grew on his face, like the Grinch. And he was like, You are just in luck because I carry a chess board with me at all times. <laughs> and we walked to the cafeteria, and it felt like the walk to fight the bully at 3 p.m. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, I knew a beatdown was on its way. So we're walking to the cafeteria, and at this point, I'm like, Jordan, you really, are, you really are an idiot. I don't know why you would challenge this dude to a chess game. At this point, like, I played AOL chess. Like, I knew the moves of chess. Like, I had gone online on my dial-up connection, and I had, like, figured out, you know, what the chess pieces do. But I was on, like, a super rookie level. I was nowhere close to anybody even being good at chess, let alone a master at chess. So in my brain, I was like, all right, Jordan, think fast. You have to do something he has never seen before. That's your only hope, is to do a move that's going to put him back on his heels. And then I'm going to force him into a mistake, and, the, and we might see you know, an, an upset that happens. So for the uninitiated, in chess, there's two pieces that I want you hearing about for the purposes of this illustration. Uh, there's a pawn, right? So a pawn is a piece that you get a bunch of them. And pawns are disposable. And you can move the pawn around the board, and if you lose one, no big deal. As a matter of fact, most people, as a part of their strategy, plan to lose pawns so that they can gain other pieces. You use your pawns to get something else that you want. So in chess or in life, a pawn is something that's disposable, something that you don't really need. You use it to advance your agenda. But a king is the one piece that you could never afford to lose. A king is the piece that you strategize your entire game around. That if you lose the king, it's over. So we sat down to play chess. And again, a master chess player could see 15 moves into the future. I started moving my pawn out the way. And then after about two moves, I moved my king out. And he was looking at me like, OK, this is pretty peculiar. And guess what, y'all? You will never guess what happened. I lost, like in two moves. <laughs> He was like, checkmate. And I was like, oh, okay. That's, that's what happens when you do that. Everybody laughed at me for being an idiot to challenge him in chess, which they were right about. But I walked away that day as a winner. Um, not really. But I walked away 
having learned a lesson that I have kept with me, not just in chess, but also in life. Here's the lesson. You never treat a king like you would a pawn. Never treat a king like you would a pawn. Pawns are disposable. We give them up in furtherance of something to get something better. We use a pawn to advance another agenda or to move forward in some other way. And if you lose it, no big deal because there's something else that you really want. But a king is something you protect at all costs. You organize and strategize everything around the preservation of the king. Now check this out, y'all. When Jesus first arrived on the scene, Jesus said that he was the king. And it made a lot of people really upset with him. Jesus' announcements about himself was that in the game of life, if life were to be played as a game, he is not a pawn. As a matter of fact, Jesus is, he's a king. He is the one that asks and invites us to orient the entirety of our life around him, not just use him in service and in furtherance of getting something else that we want. Now, we've been in a series called Jesus Is, and in Jesus Is, we've been looking at the statements that Jesus makes about himself. We've said for the last couple of weeks that if I were to pass around a microphone in this room, we would get hundreds of different perspectives and opinions about who Jesus is. But for today, we want to let Jesus to introduce himself and to tell us who he is. Check this out. If you've been rocking with Jesus for decades or if you are brand new, I think the best way to approach Jesus is to let him define himself on his own terms and then to see where we fit in with that to see if it's something that we want to, to follow instead of making up a version of Jesus that is not him at all. So Jesus says this in John 14 and 6. Um, it's a statement that is one of the most bold statements that has ever been said in, in life. Jesus says this. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Really quick, y'all, Jesus in this whole series and all of these I am statements, he's making some really, really bold statements about himself. A lot of times, like you'll think about Jesus as like this really wise, gentle teacher who makes a lot of, you know, makes people uh, feel better about themselves and gives us really wise ways on how we should live our life. And make no mistake about it, Jesus is a teacher. He does give us wisdom for life. But if you take Jesus seriously and let him def def define himself, like if he says this and he really said this, He's either an absolute lunatic and the worst narcissist that has ever lived on this planet. Like there's no celebrity narcissist worse than Jesus if this is not true. It's not possible for him to just be a good teacher. He's either the way, the truth, and the life, or he's a lunatic. He's either who he says he is or, or he's not. And I think that challenges us to think about Jesus in a different light than just saying, I'll adapt whatever pieces of Jesus I want in my life, and then I'll discard the rest. Jesus is not just a good teacher. He's claiming to be Lord in life. Now, I want to unpack this scripture for us today, um, looking at I am the way, the truth, and the life, and letting Jesus uh, hopefully lead us in a really good uh, and helpful way that we can import and practice in our lives. So the first aspect of the scripture is that Jesus is personal. Jesus is personal. So a lot of times, this scripture, if you read it, um, it's misused because people use it as like the big joker in a religious conversation, in a religious debate. It's like, oh, you know what? Oh, yeah, okay, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And, you know, conversation over, he's better than your religion or your way. 
But Jesus wasn't saying it, this in the context of a religious dis, uh, dispute or debate. Jesus was saying this to his friends who were really scared at the moment. This scripture for them was meant to serve as a personal reassurance of who he was. So let me read it and back up to chapter uh, 14, verses 1, verse 1 through 7. Jesus says this, don't let your heart be troubled. So he's talking to his friends right now, and they are afraid and scared. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. You know the way to where I am going. Lord, Thomas said, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know also, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So what's going on here in this, in this scripture? Before Jesus was crucified, Jesus is having an end-of-life conversation with the men who have left everything to follow him. I just want to just be really real for a second, and apologies for anybody who this lands is a little bit too heavy. I don't know if you have ever had an end-of-life conversation with someone, someone who knows they're about to die. It is something that you won't forget. It's not an argument. It's an endearing moment where someone is sharing some things with you that they really want you to remember, something that they really want you to take to heart. As a matter of fact, it's likely that this is the most important thing that they want you to take with them, that they want you to take with you after they don't see you anymore in the flesh. So Jesus is about to be crucified, and he knows he's about to die. As a matter of fact, in verse um, 33 of the previous chapter, Jesus says, little children, I am with you only a little while longer. So not only does Jesus know he's about to die, and this is the end of life conversation with them, but he, the disciples also know he's about to not be with them anymore. So then Thomas is starting to get scared. Not only does Jesus announce that he's leaving, but also there's a lot of disruption happening in their midst. One of their own, a man named Judas, became a betrayer, and he sold out Jesus for 30 shekels of silver. So there's betrayal in this very tight-knit community. The leader of the community says he's about to die, and Thomas is afraid. He's afraid. Jesus responds to his fears with this statement as a reassurance to him. Thomas, I, I am the way, the truth, and the life. For you, first and foremost, how I want you to take this is that Jesus is personal. The nature of a relationship with Jesus is personal. This is not just some doctrinal statement that he wants to just drop down for people to tweet or to have in their Rolodex somewhere. This is something that is meant to reassure you in your fears that he is the way. When you don't know the way, he is the way. I can think about a couple of times in, in life that, you know, I'm just, I experience fear. And the first, I think I experience fear that I'll be rejected, particularly as it pertains to following Jesus. That if I do everything that Jesus wants me to do, people will reject me. Over the last decade, this has been an enormous area of growth in my life, but I still feel like the pain of rejection is something that I would much rather avoid. And, you know, I read a study about how rejection, like chemically in your brain, neurologically in your brain, 
it's like indistinguishable from physical pain. So like if you were to be punched in your stomach, the same region of your brain that lights up for getting punched is the same region of your brain that lights up for feeling rejection. It is a, it's a painful thing. And not just rejection in general, but like if I were to live my life singularly devoted to Jesus, without regard for what anybody thought of me, that it would lead to rejection, that a lot of people wouldn't be happy with me. And Jesus responds to fears, not with a doctrinal statement, but with an assurance. I am the way. I am the truth. What they say about you is not the truth. I am the life. The life that you were chasing by, getting, by thinking you, you can avoid pain, that's not real life. I am the life. There's other times when I'm, I think I'm just afraid that following Jesus will be really uncomfortable for my whole life, and I'll miss out on good things, experiences that I, I would much rather have. You know, I, I love being comfortable. Nothing will make me happier than a nice warm day to lay in the hammock. And, um, but Scripture promises that everybody who follows Jesus will endure challenges and hardships because you follow Jesus. Not just like you'll, fo- you'll have you know, hardships, but if you follow Jesus, because the way is narrow, you will endure hardships because of that. And I don't want that. And I'm afraid that I'll look back on my life, perfectly honest, I'm afraid that I'll look back on my, on my life and I'll see some of the things that I missed out on and, then I, and I'll experience regret. And Jesus reassures us that, Jordan, that life that you think you're missing out on, that's not real life. That's just avoidance. I am the truth, the way, and the life. Other times in my life, I'm afraid that I'm going to be lost. I can think about situations that are just bigger than me, scenarios where I don't know what to do next. And I've tried to strategize my way around it. I've tried to figure it out. I've talked to other people, and I just don't know the way forward And in those moments, I hear this scripture as a gentle reassurance from a good shepherd and a good Jesus that says, I am the way, Jordan. You don't need to know the way. If you wake up feeling weak and hopeless, just remember that he is not either one of those things. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus' response to our fears is that you were never meant to navigate life without him in the first place. And in some ways, it's like for those of you who, for people who have climbed Mount Everest. Anybody in this room climb, climb Everest? Good. Because uh, um, I don't know why anybody would want to do that, first and foremost. <laughs> like, you should just watch it on Discovery Channel from your couch and be whatever. Anyway. Um, but if you were to Google, like, how to climb Everest, nobody's going to give you, like, a map. They'll give you a list of people who are Sherpas who can take you up. Because some terrains are so difficult to navigate that you can't get up there by yourself. You need somebody who has gone up there a hundred times to walk with you to make sure that you get up there safely and return safely. So when Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life, he is saying that when you encounter the complexities of life, he is not a map. He is more like a Sherpa. He is the good shepherd who will, who will guide us. And this statement is meant to give us assurance in our fears that uh, he is truly the good shepherd Uh, to us. So first and foremost, uh, this is also an invitation to us to stop worrying. Mm, To stop worrying. What are the things that you came in this morning worrying about? For me, most of the worries I have in my life are the things that I cannot navigate on my own, where I sense that I have come to the end of Jordan's knowledge, connections, and ability, and it just kind of weirds me out. And I'm filled with anxiety and worry. 
And today, you know what? I want to take the scripture as an invitation to put down my worry and to turn my eyes away from my situation and to turn my eyes towards Jesus who says, Jordan, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And for all of you who have come in this room with worries, I would invite you to do the same. So number one, Jesus is personal. Number two, though, Jesus is disruptive. Jesus is disruptive. One of my jobs as a preacher is to help all of us see who Jesus says he is and not allow anyone or anything to water down who he says he is. Now, it's up to all of us if we want to follow him, but I'm afraid in in a lot of ways our culture wants to make Jesus into something that he really wasn't. If you were to Google images of Jesus, you'll see, you know, Jesus with a perm and a little rod and, you know, some sheep that he's walking by. And it's this gentle, docile Jesus who you're like, oh, he seems great. But the reality of it is Jesus was so disruptive to the current scene that they killed him. They wanted him dead. Yo, check this out. Every single year there was this custom right around the time when Jesus was about to be crucified. Every year there was this custom that they would release a prisoner back into the crowd. So in Matthew 27, it says this, at the festival of the governor's custom, at the festival, the governor's custom was to release to the crowd a prisoner that they wanted. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, who is it that you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? Luke picks up and adds another detail, and it says, then they all cried out together, Take this man away. Release Barabbas to us. And Luke adds a detail. He said, Barabbas had been thrown in prison for a rebellion that had taken place in the city and for murder. So really quickly, this word uh, of um, rebellion, it's not like a righteous cause that he was on. This was like someone who was a looter and someone who was pillaging the people. So check this out, y'all. They have the choice to release a murderer who everybody knows did what he did, or Jesus. And in unison, everybody said, we'll take our chances with Barabbas. How disruptive would Jesus have to be for you to say, I'd rather have Barabbas running around these streets instead of Jesus? Why do you think that is? I think to a certain extent, Knowing somebody who robs people and and killed someone is around in your midst, there's a piece of your life that still has security that I can protect myself from Barabbas. But for Jesus, the one who claimed to be God and wanted total authority over your life and who believed that he had the right to tell you what to do, that he was the way, the truth, and the life, people said, actually, I'd rather not have that. That Jesus was more threatening to them than a murderer. Now, why is that? Because nobody in this room wants anybody telling you what to do. All of us would rather retain autonomy of our lives. We don't want Jesus as Lord. We love Jesus as shepherd. Jesus is my good shepherd. He'll lead me. We'll read Psalm 23 and cry a hundred tears. When it comes down to Jesus being Lord, we don't want that. I don't want that. I don't want that because I love my way. My way feels really good to me. And Jesus is disruptive. And here is the fear that I have as a pastor. My fear is that New York City is full of cultural Christians. What is cultural Christianity? Cultural Christianity is adding Jesus to the life that you have already chosen. So you have chosen a path. And you'll say, you know what? I think this needs some icing on it. So we add some Jesus icing 
on top of the cake that we have already baked, and we're determined to eat it one way or the other. Jesus was extremely controversial in his day because he claimed to be Lord. Now, this term Lord is something that, you know, it sounds religious, but actually it's not really a religious term at all. It was the term that people gave to Caesar. Caesar was the king, the, the empire, the, the ruler of that day. And when people would say Caesar is Lord, they were acknowledging that there is one person who oversees the kingdom. This Caesar has the ability to define and to determine how everything goes here. And when I say Caesar is Lord, I am saying I live in his kingdom and he is the boss. And when they said that term, they took that term and ascribed it and gave that to Jesus. What they were saying is Jesus has a kingdom of which I am a part. And I'm acknowledging that he gets the chance to say what goes and what doesn't go. Now, in my own life, I can't think of a more challenging thing about Jesus than that. I've talked about this a number of times. When I pray the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven, who are, um, hallowed be your name, thy kingdom come, your will be done. When I get to that line saying, God, I want your will in my life, I just start to struggle because I'm thinking, do I? Do I, though? Like, do you really want God's will in your life? Do you want God's will or do you want your will? And I've learned over the years that by praying that prayer, that prayer is a declaration of faith. It's not where I'm at. Most of the time, emotionally, I'm like, I say it fast. I'm like, you will be done all in one, <laughs> one line. Because if I were to think about it, to relinquish control is the last thing I want to do over my life. And I think I get that honestly. I get that from our earliest ancestors, Adam and Eve. Uh, when you read the book of Genesis, Genesis 2 and 3, you see that God gave Adam and Eve a prohibition. He gave them a restriction. He gave them a limitation. He said, y'all are free to eat from any tree in this garden except for that one. And he placed a restriction and a limitation over their lives. In the next chapter, it says the enemy, the Satan, the, the devil comes to them and he deceives them. And by deceiving them, this is how he deceived them. He deceived them into thinking that God was trying to withhold a good thing from them. Scripture says when they looked at the tree of the fruit, they saw it, it was desirable to the eyes. And immediately they believed that God was trying to withhold something good from them. So the only way that they would find happiness and contentment is by going outside of the bounds of what God had said to do. And that's a story that I have lived a thousand times in my life, believing that God is trying to withhold something from me. And as a result, I ex God out of certain parts of my life because I don't want him having dominion there. Now, we mentioned earlier that you should never treat a king like you do a pawn. And in so many different areas of our lives, we treat Jesus like not like he's a king, like he's the one that we orient everything else around, but like he's a pawn. He's the piece that we, we move around. And when it's convenient for us, we'll do it. When it's not convenient to us, we'll discard it. Now, in our culture right now, there are two huge landmines that um, I hope we could talk about with grace and uh, understanding that are like just some areas that I've seen people completely draw a circle around in their life and say, Jesus, you can have access to this part, but don't even, like, don't even start. Like, don't even talk to me about this, because I'm not even doing this. And in so many different ways, we reject him as the way, the truth, and the life, because we're saying, Jesus, I don't want to know what you have to say about these things. No more powerful issues than sex and, and money. 
Sex and money are two great examples of things that I've seen mishandled, one, by the church. Um, there's so many terrible teachings and so much, so much uh, bad has happened to people because of the way the church uh, has mishandled these topics and money as well. Um, but also, these issues are difficult for people to talk about because we are cool with Jesus's lordship until he comes for the bedroom or our wallets. I'll let Jesus teach me how to be kinder to my kids. But when it comes down to those two areas, I've seen as major struggles for people because they are a struggle, to be perfectly honest. So one of the things about sex that we talked about a number of weeks ago, and sex is a struggle for a lot of people, and I really want to emphasize and not minimize that it truly, genuinely is a, a serious struggle for people. But I've heard of sex described as a holy fire. Uh, a couple years ago, I went to a cabin, and um, we were in the cabin, and there was like this beautiful uh, fireplace. And at night, it was cold. It was the wintertime. And at night, you could put fires in the fireplace, light the match, and it would just provide all of this warmth and beauty and heat to the whole home. I love fireplaces. We watch the fireplaces on YouTube at my house now when people come over. <laughs> it don't hit the same way a real fireplace does, but in New York City, it's the best we could do. But a fireplace, sex has been referred to as a holy fire, that within the bounds of where it's supposed to be, it's beautiful and it provides warmth to the entire home. But if you were to move those logs two feet out onto the carpet, it would be destructive. And all throughout the Bible, Scripture talks about sex as being something between a husband and a wife, something that is meant to bless the home, something that is meant to be beautiful. Check this out, y'all. The Bible is so pro-sex that it would blow the doors off your understanding. And in, in a lot of ways, our culture has too low of a view of sex. Here's how. We talked about this a couple of months ago in our series on Embodied. Our culture views sex as an activity, something you do or don't do, something you do well or don't do well. But Scripture doesn't talk about sex as an activity. Scripture says sex is a communication that is meant to communicate something holy to people, that it's meant to communicate to someone that you are loved, you are lovable, and I give myself entirely to you. When the Bible talks about sex, it links it to the connection between Christ and his commitment to the church. And there's this profound mystery of the beauty of what sex is meant to communicate. And you can't just communicate that to anybody. Now, again, I realize there's a lot of uh, tension around this concept of sex. A couple of months ago, I was thinking about it in a series. Um, usually, like Monday mornings, I'm in the shower and I'm thinking about what I didn't say the, the day before. And I'm like, yo, next time I get up, I'm going to say this joint. And um, I was thinking about the concept of consent. And our culture has a very low view of consent. I was on Twitter and someone was saying, like, you know, teach your sons not to rape people. And I was like, whoa, okay. Like, is that the best we can do? Seriously. Is the best we can do as a culture is to teach our sons to get consent so they can use somebody for their own purposes. I don't want to just stop there. The Bible has a much higher view of consent. It says it's super duper consent. It's not just saying, do I have permission to use your body parts for these next eight minutes? It's saying, I, I, I want to give you all of me. And my goal for my sons is not just to teach them to do one thing or another. It's to teach them what does it mean for you to be an emotionally healthy man who learns to give his entire life to someone, not just for 10 minutes in the bedroom, but your entire life. And then when you are in the bedroom, you can communicate with real, 
with reality that I give you that you're communicating you are loved, you are lovable, and I give myself to you. But check this out. No matter how beautiful the biblical sexual ethic is, it tends to be an area of life where people just don't care. Don't even want to listen to it because we've already determined this is what we're going to do, and that's it. My fear is that for all of us who treat our bodies like that, we're treating Jesus like a pawn and not the king. We're not letting him have access to those areas of our life. Now, I'm a person who does not have clean hands in his areas. I have my very fair share of mistakes and struggles. Uh, but this is to say that the goal of Christianity, what it means to be a disciple, is to learn to give Jesus access to every single crevice and area of your life. Money is also another issue. And while we're going, let's just keep on going. There's a lot of people who raise their hands and worship and praise and say, I give myself away. But when it comes time to think about generosity, they're like, no. You'll give your hands and worship, but you won't give a dollar from your pocket. Why is that? It's because of all of the teachings that Jesus has given us, the New Testament is like so full of very clear teaching that what it means to be a Christian is to be a generous person. But when's the last time you've prayed like, Lord, what is it? How is it that you want me to be generous with your money? Scripture teaches a concept called stewardship. Stewardship is a kind of a fancy word that means this, that everything that I have is not mine. It belongs to God. And he has entrusted me for this season of life with resources, people, things, relationships. And he is going to ask me to give an account for how I use the things that he has given me. So every single penny in your bank account belongs to him. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and they that dwell therein. But yet we don't, we don't see money like that. Money is ours. And one of the biggest challenges for a lot of people when it comes to uh, money and finances is just we just don't want to give Jesus access to let us, to tell us what to do with our money. So here's my invitation to you that you would go home and pray about what it looks like for you to be generous and say, Jesus, I don't want to be generous on my own. Or I'm struggling with being generous with my money, with your money. And I want you to teach me how to be generous with your money. I want you to give me an, a number and take this out. For those of you who say you don't hear God answers, that God doesn't answer your prayers, pray this prayer and I promise you God's going to answer your prayer. How much money do you want me to give? And open up your bank account. Now, I want you to, there's nothing wrong with money. So I'm not saying give everything away. There's nothing wrong with enjoying yourself. Paying your bills is great. Having a savings account is even better. But what would it look like for us to truly submit every single aspect of our life, including our money, to Jesus and say, Jesus, you're the king. You're saying you're the way, the truth, and the life, which means my way is wrong. The limited knowledge I have is, inc is, is incomplete, and the life that I'm pursuing is not real life. For me also, when I think about um, how I respond to situations, uh, Aswan joked about this last week, about just you know the way we act and react whenever we feel disrespected. But for me, whenever I feel disrespected, I need my name to be cleared. I need it. And one thing you're not going to do is disrespect me. It brings up, man, so many difficult emotions when I feel disrespected. And the last thing I want to do in those moments is to pray for somebody who disrespected me. But Jesus says, pray for your enemies. In these moments, we're going to have to choose. Are you going to take your way or are you going to take Jesus's way? Over the years, I used to think that I would learn about what it means to be a Christian. I would understand the gospel better 
by getting into more Bible studies, by coming to more church services, and those have helped me by no, you know, make no mistake about it. Those have helped me tremendously. However, I have learned more about the gospel in praying for my enemies than I have in 20 Bible studies. Because when you're praying for your enemies, you're praying for someone to receive grace and gentle change and, and correction who doesn't deserve it. And my biggest challenge in life was believing that God can pour out good love and on me because I did not deserve it. I've watched my pharisaical hard heart changed, not because I really wanted to be friends with this person. Many of these people, I've never, wanted, I've never had a relationship with them after those moments. But I've seen my heart change and transform because I followed what Jesus wanted to do instead of going in the direction that I wanted to go in. Here's the thing about following Jesus. In the moment, it might not make sense. However, if you persist, if you keep walking in the direction that Jesus calls you to walk in, eventually, not tomorrow, not overnight, don't email me next month, eventually, it will make crystal clear sense to you why he said what he said. Whatever it is, area in your life, let me ask you this question right now. What area of your life have you drawn a circle around and said, Jesus, you can have this, but don't touch that? And I want you to ask Jesus, ask the Holy Spirit for grace to let him into that area of your life. So Jesus is disruptive. Last, Jesus is the way to the Father. Jesus is personal. Jesus is disruptive, and Jesus is the way to the Father. So in verse 6, Jesus says this. He says, I t- uh, Jesus told them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he says this phrase, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, this is more than just semantics where Jesus is saying, no one comes to God except through me. He is saying the only way to experience intimacy with God is through me. You have two choices in your pursuit of God. It will be on your own efforts and your own merits and how well you have done, or it will be based on Jesus. But it will never be both of them at the same time. And the only way to genuinely experience the comfort, the relaxation of what it means to be a child of God is through Jesus. Because scripture tells us that God came down in the person of Jesus and that he went to the cross to make you his children. Scripture says that we have been adopted by God. Now, I used to be a family court attorney and um, I practice family law. And one of the things I love to do more than anything else in family law were adoptions. Adoptions were the most beautiful court proceedings that I've ever been a part of. The judges who were formerly mean as rattlesnakes were nice that day. Um, Everybody was in a good mood because this beautiful thing was happening. A child who didn't have a home was now um, getting a safe and loving home. And man, it was always a tear-filled time to to witness that. But one of the things about adoption that I've learned is this. In 100% of adoptive cases, it always begins on the side of the parent. There has never been an adoption in the history of the world in which the child decided to be adopted and pick the parent out, where the child worked hard and then gained adoption. No, adoption always begins on the side of the parent. That parent goes through this process of adoption, and that process of adoption is irreversible and it's permanent. They have made you their child. Scripture tells us that Jesus came down from heaven, went to the cross, went through the process to make us his children. And as it says in John 1, for those who believe in him, he gave us the right to become the children of God. Here's how this applies to your life. Tomorrow morning, you will wake up and you will evaluate your life based on usually how well you're doing, how much you've avoided things, how much you didn't avoid things, how much you read, how much you prayed, 
And if you do that, that will be like running on a treadmill. You will never go anywhere because you could have always done better. There's never been a day where you could not have done better. However, if you learn what it means, what Jesus is saying, that he is the way to the Father, that real intimacy with God starts and ends with looking to him, the one who secured our way to God and promises us that he will take us with him, and you can come to him with all of your weakness and your failings and your sin and just say, Jesus, I confess the ways that I have fallen short and I'm coming to you. I can't get there by myself. It takes it away from performance to love. And here's why. Because when I think about the cross, Jesus did not hang on the cross just for a legal transaction. Scripture says, for God so loved the world. Jesus hung on the cross because he loves you. And this was the way back to God. And when you and I look at the cross, the eternal love of God poured out for us, the undying love for, God, for us poured out for us on the cross. That's when our hearts can have a little bit of assurance that if he were to go to the cross, there's nothing else in this world that he would spare from us. There's no length that he wouldn't go to for you or for me. And that is a way to have intimacy with the Father. Let me pray for us. So, Jesus, there, is, uh, there are people here who are struggling to give you access to parts of their lives that they have previously not wanted to give you access to. Jesus, I pray for the courage and the gentle nudge of the Holy Spirit to tell us that it's okay, it's safe. You can put that in my hand too. You can put your job in, your hand, in my hand. You can put your kids in my hand. You can put your future in my hand. You can put your money in my hand. And you're good. Jesus, help us to trust you. Help us to learn what it means that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and you invite us to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.